so the literal principle, what does it mean? What does the literal principle mean? Well, have you ever been talking with somebody who told you that's just your interpretation? That's just your interpretation of the Bible. Maybe it was over your views of sexuality or what was permissive in the Word of God uh, or your view on tongues or whatever. And they just said, well, that's just your interpretation. What do you do when somebody corners you that way? Is that the end of the discussion? Oh, I guess they're right. That's just my view. They have their view and that's it. Well, if I talk to them, I want to concede to them that if it's just my interpretation, then that is a problem. And they aren't at all compelled by God to follow it. But we don't leave it at that. I would say if it's just my interpretation, who cares? But let's go to the Bible. Let's see. Let's see if it's just my interpretation. No one cares what you think the text means. And so if it's just your interpretation, that's a problem. But you ought to accept the challenge. If somebody asks you or tells you, uh, that's just your interpretation. How do you know that's not just your interpretation? You ought to say, well, let's look at the text. Let's go to the book and see if that's so. Let's see what the text plainly means. So this idea of the literal principle means a few things. We're trying to fit our head around it. One is to let the Bible speak for itself. Let's go to the Bible and let's let it speak to us and see what it says. The other thing here is that we are to respect the Bible as literature. That word literal comes from this idea of litera in the Latin meaning letter, from which we also derive our word literature. So when we talk about the literal principle, we're not saying that every, everything in the Bible that we interpret must be interpreted as literal. But the point of the literal principle is really encapsulated in the Reformation returning, when the Reformers returned back to saying, let's just let the Bible speak for itself. Let's read the Bible, not as some mystical text, not as some secret code, but let's read it as any other literature. And that's not to say it's not a divine book, but that we are going to read it in its historical, grammatical sense. I know this is profound, but the Bible is literature, so we must respect it as such. And then we could say the literal principle means that we are to read the Bible for what it plainly says. That is certainly the sense. People will approach the Bible in all kinds of strange and mystical ways. And that's partly why we took our time to go through a brief history of hermeneutics. Why do we do that? Because I want you to see that there have been many different approaches to the Bible. And even as I was preparing for this again this week, you know, I, so many different conversations come to mind with people I've had, whether in cults or other religions, or even those who claim to be born-again Christians. And they have all these different ideas about how to interpret the Bible, but we need to read the Bible for what it plainly says. I remember a friend who once approached me with his Bible open to Matthew 120, and he was somewhat animated because his name was Joseph, and he was seeking the Lord's will at this time, for who he was to marry. And he, he was reading Matthew 1.20 that says, But when he had considered this, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. <gasps> he thought, he said, Nathan, I think the Spirit's trying to tell me something. And, you know, I didn't want to interfere with what the Holy Spirit might be trying to do in his life, but I had to inform him that there's only one virgin Mary. And that's what this text is talking about. It's talking about people who lived in this particular time, space, history. And, and we need to respect the Bible for what it plainly says. Not take it out of its historical grammatical context. So 
as we've seen through history, some will look beneath the text, some look around it, some look down at it or above it or try to look through it, but we are simply look at the text. Just look at the book. And what's the basis for doing that? Why observe the literal principle? Well, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but ultimately it recognizes the clarity of Scripture. That's why I mentioned the Reformers just a moment ago. Because it was the Reformation that brought the church back to saying, the Bible is not a cold book. The Bible is essentially plain. It is perspicuous, a term that means clear. <laughs> that is altogether unclear, but um, the Bible is clear enough to be understood by laymen. You don't need a priest to understand it. And God gives his people, the Holy Spirit, to help them in this endeavor. God is not the author of confusion. He has spoken plainly to us. Now, we will examine the fact there are things in Scripture difficult to be understood. But there are other reasons, too, that the literal principle is essential. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament literally. Again, going off of how we just defined that a moment ago. And the biblical prophecy we see within Scripture is interpreted literally. God gives prophecies about the Messiah. They are fulfilled literally. And... We read the Bible for what it plainly says because this is also the most natural way to interpret anything. And the Bible makes sense when interpreted this way. So that's why you observe the literal principle. Now this is very important. It might not strike you as important, but the more we interact with the culture of our time, we realize there is an attempt to actually redefine meaning itself, redefine truth itself. If you want to know... At the, at the root of it, why there's so much confusion in academia today, it goes a lot to this, what we're looking at, is people are attempting to redefine how meaning is defined. So when we come to the Bible, people will say, it is fully legitimate for you to go to the Bible, and however you respond to the text, that's a legitimate meaning of the text. It's a reader response theory, or the deconstructionist who said that, well, you know, in the 20th century, they said, and it's still popular today, that it's fully valid to deconstruct the meaning of a text and to make of it what we want to make of it. Again, truth is subjective to me. And it's not so essential what Paul meant when he wrote it. What does it mean to you? So today, one of the things I, I want to bring before us under this literal principle is the fact that meaning is defined by the author. And this is what we refer to as authorial intent. So whenever I mention authorial intent, you want to know that means I'm referring to the intent of the author, authorial intent. That is the meaning of the text. If I ask you what defines the meaning of the text, the answer is authorial intent. It is the intent of the original author. That's the primary goal of hermeneutics, to discover what did the original authors mean by what they wrote. It's not how, how do you feel about it, right? What did, what did the church do in the Inquisition and, or the Crusader? People will abuse the word of God all the time, but what did the original text mean? That's the goal of hermeneutics, to discover that, to understand that. Now, this should be self-evident, but it's really not. In fact, just as an example, I remember going into a intervarsity Bible study at a local college and the Bible study was basically, and this is pretty common, everybody goes in a circle, we read the text and, and everybody just says what it means to me. And that was it. That was, that was the, the Bible study. There's no challenging your interpretation or that. And there were some very interesting ideas. <laughs> you can imagine on a, on a secular campus that come up 
even within a Christian Bible study, what does the text mean to me? But please understand, while the text must mean something to you, it ought to mean something to you, that is not the ultimate goal of hermeneutics. All right, the first question is, what does it say? What does it mean? And then what does it mean to you? Who cares what you feel about the text? What did God say? What did God intend? What is the authorial intent? And I want to give you, and I want us to consider three biblical reasons why the meaning of a text is truly defined by the author. All right? First of all, the Bible indicates that meaning exists independently of ourselves and ultimately in God. Before you ever existed, before you ever thought anything, before you made any meaning of life or anything like that, the Bible tells us in the beginning was the word. That is the logos. That is the, the ground, an explanation of all meaning. And this word, the word was with God and the word was God. Meaning is grounded in God. And this is from eternity. And when it comes to interpreting the biblical text, the author's intention is the true meaning. It's a meaning that we should respect because the meaning of those authors is not something we create. It existed before we existed. When Peter or Paul or John or whoever were writing those texts, we had to respect the fact they wrote that. They meant something by that text centuries before you were ever born. Centuries before you ever had any opinion about the text. And so meaning does exist outside ourselves in a Christian worldview that should be clear. And this meaning is not dependent on our own ideas or preference. Even if we find it offensive, we should ask, what does the text mean? What did it mean to the original authors? That's what it means. Now, three implications follow. First, this definition of meaning, that is, meaning is the authorial intent, the intent of the author. That recognizes the immutability of truth. That is, that the text's meaning never changes with time. What Jesus said and what he meant in the first century is still what that text means even if we're in the 21st century. And nothing changes that. The other thing, secondly, this definition of meaning gives us an objective standard to test whether an interpretation is true or false. Because if you could say, well, that's just your interpretation, this is just my interpretation, they're all equally valid, then there is no way, there is no standard for deciding who's right, who's wrong, and you could basically force fit any interpretation on the text. Who is to arbitrate? Who is to say who's right and wrong? Well, here's the answer to that. The authorial intent. That is the objective standard of what a text means. And thirdly, here's a third implication that falls from authorial intent as the meaning. This definition of meaning makes it possible for God to communicate his intention to us with authority and trustworthiness so that we may trust the text of scripture to convey exactly what he intended you do away with authorial intent as defining the meaning of scripture and you have just cut off the possibility of God communicating his intent to you so the bible indicates meaning exists independently of ourselves ultimately in God but secondly you better treat the authorial intent as the meaning because the Bible assumes the authorial intent as the meaning. I want to give you an example of this. You can go to John chapter 21 if you like. John chapter 21. And let's look at verses 18 through 21. Now Jesus is on the shore of Galilee with his disciples. And this is where he tells Peter, 
Peter, I say to you, truly, truly, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. So John explains, now in verse 19, now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. John's telling you the sense, the intention of Jesus Christ. And when he had spoken this, he said to to Peter, follow me. Verse 20, Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. That's John. And then go down to verse 21. So Peter seeing him, that is John, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went among the brethren that that disciple, speaking of John, would not die. Why do people think that? Because Jesus was saying, if I wanted to remain until I come, that's none of your business. That's my decision. But look at this, verse 23. Therefore, this this saying went among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? You know what John's telling us in his commentary in the gospel is that Jesus never said I wasn't going to die. Jesus, what he intended to say is, that what happens to John, that's my business. Peter, you follow me. Another example would be 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. You could put that down. This is where Paul is writing to the church at Corinth about the immorality in their church. And he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. But then he says in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 5, 10, I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world. He's saying, my point was not that you couldn't associate, keep company, interact with sinners. Because he says then, if that were the case, you would have to go out of this world. This world is full of sinners. But actually, he says, verse 11, here's his personal explanation of, his, of what he meant. Here's his authorial intent. I wrote to you not to associate with anyone's so-called brother if he is an immoral person. That was his point. He said if somebody's claiming to be a brother in the church and they're living in unrepentant, persistent sin, he says, you need to separate from them. You need to not affirm them in their lifestyle. You need to follow church discipline. So that's the authorial intent. We could see the Bible assumes authorial intent itself. Now, there's a third reason that we could use to point... I I think there's many others, but I just boiled it down to this for sake of time. A third reason that we understand from Scripture authorial intent is the only valid meaning of the text, and that is the golden rule. The golden rule must be applied to hermeneutics. What is the golden rule? Do to others as you would have them do to you. Matthew 7, 12 is one place we see Jesus mentioning this. In everything, he says, therefore treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. So this is what all the law boils down to. And In everything, he says, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Does the golden rule apply to how we interpret others? I don't know how it couldn't. Why wouldn't it apply? As sensible as this sounds, that we should just treat other people's texts the way we want them to treat our text, the new hermeneutic, that is this reader response theory, deconstructionism, all this stuff that says, I can go to the text and make of it whatever I want, and that's all that matters. That is breaking the golden rule. Why? Because nobody wants their words to be so misconstrued. 
There's a kind of a humorous example to be found in D.A. Carson's book, The Gagging of God. He tells a story. He was once giving a lecture at a seminary near Chicago, and there was a, a doctoral student that was debating with him, insisting that, that he was too dogmatic, that he needed deeper appreciation for the ambiguities of language, the limits of our understanding, the uniqueness of each individual, and the social nature of knowledge. And that would surely drive him to a more positive assessment of this new hermeneutic, this subjectivist approach to truth and meaning. It can mean whatever you want to. Carson says that he tried to defend his position, but was quite unable to persuade her. And so he says, finally, in a moment of sheer intellectual perversity on my part, he says, I joyfully exclaimed, ah, now I think I see what you are saying. You are using delicious irony to affirm the objectivity of truth. And the lady was not amused. That is exactly what I am not saying, she protested with some heat, and she laid out her position again. I clasped my hands together, he says, in enthusiasm, and told her how delighted I was to find someone using irony so cleverly in order to affirm the possibility of objective knowledge. And her answer was more heated. And he says, I believe she accused me of twisting what she was saying. I told her I thought it was marvelous that she should add emotion to her irony, all to the purpose of exposing the futility of extreme relativism and thereby affirming truth's objectivity. Not surprisingly, she exploded in real anger. But when she finally calms down, he says to her rather quietly, but this is how I am reading you. And she kind of sputtered out. He says she didn't really know what to say to that because they don't. They can't live consistently with such a hermeneutic. It doesn't work. If they did, what's their point when they open their mouths or when they put a pen to the paper? So, we all want to be understood. We all expect to be understood. And you just bring somebody back to the golden rule the next time they say that what Jesus said, what Paul said, what the Bible says, doesn't really matter. It's just really what they make of it, what they mean of it. Nobody can live in such a world. And uh, so then we must endeavor to put ourselves, on, all of what I'm saying here is that we must endeavor to put ourselves in the sandals of the biblical writers. There's a lot of sentimentality. There's a lot of sensationalism out there about, oh, this text speaks to me. But let me ask you this. What did it mean to the original authors? Because that's the meaning of the text. And if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? It can mean anything. Authorial intent is the only objective safeguard to safeguard the meaning that God intended in the text. So before asking, what does the text mean to me? Always inquire, what does it say? What does it mean? And then, what does it mean to me? All right, that's important. Now, meaning, we see, also is limited to the authorial intent. What's authorial intent? Again, maybe a fancy word, maybe a new expression to you. Well, what's it mean? The author's intent, simple. So to say the, the meaning is limited to the authorial intent is to say, this is what we also call the law of single meaning. There isn't multiple meanings in the text. It's just what the author means. Now, you could say if the author provides, himself provides for that, like in our Constitution, there may be a provision for some kind of interpret, you know, expanded interpretations or things like that. But every text has just one meaning, namely the author's. And there's admittedly some controversy over this in evangelicalism, but I, I want to give you the way that I've understood it and I think it was helpful and the first thing we should start with is the rule. What's the rule? And that is 
no text can serve two interpretations. No text can serve two interpretations. It must serve the interpretation of the original author. Of course, I will have to have my own interpretation if I'm going to understand it, but <laughs> my understanding will only be correct in so much that it corresponds to what the original author intended. So you'll hear people, though, pulling verses here and there, adding up numbers in the Bible, and even coming up with like dates about when Jesus is going to return. How do they do that? Because they ignore this. They are taking passages that have nothing to do with the return of Christ, and they're using them to interpret. I heard one guy talking about like the seven years that Jacob was working for Rachel, and then, and then you know, he didn't get her. He got Leah, and so he had to work another seven years. And he was using this to try to prove something about, believe it or not, the Lord's coming and his whole calendar thing. I'm like, what? Is that the purpose? Was that the authorial intent of the story, of the narrative? Absolutely not. Don't try to fit more meaning into it than what God intended. And others will come to the Bible and they'll open it up and they'll put a finger on a line, you know? They'll, they'll say, oh, what does this say here? There was a Seventh-day Adventist talking about how they were being led of God to leave their city. I don't know if it was New York or whatever. And they were going to the mountains because they read what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse that then those who are in Jerusalem flee to the mountains. As they were saying, so God's telling us, and actually E.B. White, uh, she published a book about this, like Country Living or something, where people are to leave cities. And she's using it on this text, and we're thinking, that's not Jesus' point. If you interpret the Bible that way, what do you do with the text where God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it? What is that telling everybody to move into a great city? No. So let's not try to pack more meaning into the text than God intended. Let's stick with the law of single meaning, understanding that meaning is limited to the authorial intent. When I say meaning again there, I'm not talking about applications, all that stuff. In fact, that's my next point, is that a text has only one interpretation, one meaning, but may have several implications. Maybe somebody was already thinking this, right? Like, well, when I go to a text, though, can't you apply it in so many different ways? Absolutely. One meaning, many applications. One interpretation, many implications will be possible. Just consider 1 Corinthians 6.19. So that says, Paul says to the Christians in Corinth who are prostituting their bodies, he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? Now what does that text mean? That's where we would want to start. And we're going to want to apply the other principles of hermeneutics, the contextual principle, the grammatical principle, the theological principle, all that. But as we go to this text, we say, wow, you know, as we're, we're studying it, we're reading it, we're looking at it, and we're asking, what did it mean to Paul? What does God mean by this? Then we realize God is saying, your body does not belong to you. It belongs to God. It's his temple. God gave you your hands, your feet, your body, everything to worship him with, to obey him. Romans 6, so yield your instruments as members of righteousness to serve God. Now, there are many implications of this truth, right? There are negative implications, things we shouldn't do with our body. There are positive implications. There are things we should do with our body. And we could go on and on about that list. But before you start making applications, first ascertain what is the authorial intent. Why? Because that's what God intended. And we want to be on the same page with God. So, all right, so many... Many implications, but one interpretation. But there's, and the rule is, 
there's one interpretation to every text, but there's an exception. Because we come to the Bible and we realize that the Bible is a divine book. It's not just, is it just like any other piece of literature? No. What's different about the Bible? What's unique about it? It's written by God. But do we deny it was written by men? No. So you're telling me it was written by men and it was written by God? Yes. The Bible itself says that that's the doctrine of inspiration, is that God inspired his text using human beings to write out his words precisely the way he intended, using their personalities, all of that. So that means that there is a human author and a divine author. And the two should not be seen at odds with each other, but we should expect that there's going to be certain Pauline characteristics, uh, certain Johannian characteristics in the, in the literature John has produced for us. But in all of it, we should expect God to bring some kind of cohesiveness because he's the one inspiring the text ultimately. In fact, I didn't say this, but this is in your outline there. The divine author, here's the exception about the Bible. The divine author does sometimes transcend it's a very important word, sometimes transcend the intent of the human authors in giving witness to Christ. Remember that, let me qualify this a little bit, because remember that in the Middle Ages we saw developing from, from a lot of the way the Greeks had, and even the rabbis had approached their texts, Christians began saying there's a twofold, threefold, fourfold meaning to each text of scripture. And what that was doing was opening the floodgates to anything you could see in there, you, you, could, you could legitimize. That was very dangerous. And so this is not that. I want you to understand that. What we're saying is that because the Bible is a divinely authored book and God's behind it, it doesn't surprise us that it is full of prophecies about Jesus Christ before Jesus even came. Let me give you an example. In Psalm 22, this is one of the greatest examples I love, David wrote the psalm, and he is poetically describing his sufferings. That is to say, David was not writing Psalm 22, and, and like he had Jesus in mind, and he said, oh, Jesus is going to die on the cross in the year 80, 30, or 33, or whatever, and, and this is true about him. No, that's, that's clearly not what David understood. If David understood that, he would have told us so, and that would have been plain somewhere else in the text. He is describing his own sufferings metaphorically, in a poetic way. And yet, while David is writing, because we, we understand the Bible is not simply just a human book, we understand the Holy Spirit is also moving David to write what he did. David is writing of himself poetically, but as David's writing poetically, here's the amazing irony. God is writing literally concerning Christ. How do you know that? Read the New Testament. Read what happened to Jesus. All these things David's describing are fulfilled literally of Christ. No coincidence. How is it even possible? Well, the New Testament writers tell us, they recognized that these things were spoken of Christ. Jesus himself would say in Luke 24, all that the uh, law and the prophets have said, they said of me. The scriptures spoke concerning me. How could Jesus say that? Was it arrogance? Was he misinterpreting anything? No. Jesus knew the scriptures. And Jesus authored the scriptures. And they were about him. Did the, did the human writers understand all that? Did they, did they even know the name Jesus, that his name would be Jesus? They didn't have to. The Bible tells us there were a lot of things they didn't understand, but as they're writing, just keep that in mind. This is a human text. 
And just like any text, we go to this text and we say, what did the author mean? But it's also a divine text. The two are not at odds with each other. And it means this. I'm going to come to portions of scripture like Hosea 11, 1. And I'm going to read there about Israel coming out of Egypt. And then I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And I'm going to read that out of Egypt I call my son. And Matthew's saying that was fulfilled in Jesus. And you're going to be like, what? Hosea wasn't talking about Jesus. He didn't have Jesus in mind. You're right. He didn't have to have Jesus in mind. The Holy Spirit did. And he was creating out of Israel in the Old Testament a pattern, a type of the ultimate son of God. The ultimate Israel, prince of God, who would come out of Egypt. This is no coincidence, friends. This is just an acknowledgement of the perfect plan and power and sovereignty of our God. So this doesn't trouble me at all. This doesn't open the floodgates to any kind of subjectivism. It simply says when we come to the scripture, there is the rule that like any piece of literature, we read the Bible, we respect it as literature, we say, what is the authorial intent? But then we recognize, wow, this is a divine book like no other. There are times when the human authors in the Old Testament, for instance, didn't even understand everything they were saying, but we can see, wow, God was transcending even their immediate understanding to speak concerning his son, Jesus Christ. All right. I, I'm hoping that at the end of this course, what we can do is we can revisit some of the genres of scripture. And when we go through prophecy, maybe we can look at some of this in more detail. But that's the, that's the big principle here. All right. Now, in your outline too, I mentioned there's an analogy here. Because this, this is just helpful for me to think of it this way. Single meaning and prophetic types, right? There's a single meaning in scripture, we said. There's a law of single meaning. But there are instances where God is transcending the human author's intention and giving us something more in Jesus. And I believe that is very much analogous to what we see in nature. God himself designed the laws of nature. He orders it. He establishes it so that there's a uniformity to creation. And therefore, science is possible. And yet at the same time, that does not eliminate the possibility of miracles. In fact, miracles do happen. But miracles are not capricious like they are in the myths. Like C.S. Lewis said, Christianity is true myth. It's exactly what we would expect if miracles are possible. Miracles are God momentarily in some spectacular way suspending the laws of nature to speak, to show us, to emphasize something concerning truth, concerning himself, concerning his son. And I think there's a, a really good analogy there then between what's happening in miracles of nature and what's happening with this transcendent meaning at times, types and patterns and things unaware to the human authors that God is, is bringing about in the text of scripture. Now, here's the thing we'll, we'll leave you with, and that is the meaning is best discerned by a literary approach, a normal literary approach. So if God has made himself clear, then the singular authorial meaning of a text is its plainest meaning. And there's three steps here I have, how we should use this normal literary approach, apply the literal principle. The first is to default to the literal reading of the text. Now these things should be basic. These things should go without saying, but my, my brother, my sister, I have to say it. Because there are many people, especially in a charismatic movement, that approach God in a very sensational way, and they do not default to the literal translation. They believe that because the Holy Spirit is going to speak to them through the word, that whatever hits their head, whatever gets to their mind first, that's the meaning. And don't you dare argue with them, because 
God told me, thus says the Lord. Well, that's scary. You say, thus says the Lord, you better have a quote, all right, from Scripture. Well, we should default to the literal meaning of the text. And that is, that is something, again, that is just so basic. That's because the literal meaning is the most natural meaning. This is how we interpret anybody. Imagine you, you tried to understand everybody figurative before you took them literally. That would be absolute confusion. I mean, try to think about that for a moment. The literal meaning is generally the simplest meaning. And I will say this. This is something to, to think about, that the simplest meaning of a text is usually correct. Okay. Well, I would say usually. Simplest meaning of the text. You're going to use Occam's Ray. We're, we're going to go to the Bible and we're going to say, if, it's, if we're complicating, if the explanation is getting complicated here, it's probably not right. That's a good warning sign, at least I would say that. And so we default to this literal plain meaning. Does it make sense? And this literal meaning is generally the most rational. So this, this means the burden of proof is going to rest on someone who chooses a reading that is other than literal. And my pastor used to say this, if the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense or you'll have nonsense. If the plain sense makes good sense, take it. But if the plain sense makes good sense, don't seek any other sense. You go along looking for something else. When the plain sense makes good sense, you're going to end up with something nonsensical. So default to the literal reading of the text, but be aware of exceptions to the literal reading. Now, what would those exceptions be? I think I've listed them, those in your outline. Figures of speech would be one. We know this. We use this in language all the time. This is why we say we have to respect the Bible as literature. What would some figures of speech be? Well, similes. I think of Jeremiah 23, 29. Jeremiah says, I have become like a drunken man. Was he confessing to drinking here? Is that why he, was, he says, I've become like a drunken man? No, and the context is very plain that he was so troubled, he, he found himself, because of the judgments God said he's going to pour out on Judah, that he found himself swaggering with fear. He is drunken with the fear of God. And so you've seen somebody swagger around. They have a control. Jeremiah is saying, this is affecting me physically. But he's, he's saying, I was like a drunken man. Jesus would say to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, Woe to you, you Pharisees, you are like whitewashed tombs. And the value of a simile is now you can unpack that. What is a whitewashed tomb? Think about it. And see about how on the outside they were looking good, inside full of dead men's bones. Wow, that, that'll preach. Similes are easy. Because they are stated comparisons. Metaphors can be a little more tricky because they are unstated comparisons. A metaphor involves a substitution of one word for another. When John says to Jesus, I mean, this is an easy example. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What did he see? A lamb, actual lamb? No. Jesus is a lamb in a metaphorical sense. In the sense that he is the typological fulfillment of all the lambs that God commanded to be slain for sin. Jesus says, I am the door, John 10, 9. That's an easy one. What about Romans 12, 1, where Paul says, brothers, after giving all this theological information, he says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. What is, what is this, human sacrifice? No. This is a metaphor. And if you understand what a sacrifice is, there's an awesome truth in that. What about this one? Jesus takes bread, breaks it, gives it to his disciples, says, this is my body. Oh, that's a controversial one there. Is Jesus using bread 
as a metaphor, <laughs> or we take them literally. You know where our church stands on that. But needless to say, there's a lot of confusion over that. Alongside metaphors, we could include, by the way, symbols and types. Symbols and types are a, a type of metaphor, really. It's a substitution of one word for another, concept for another. But symbols and types is unique to biblical literature in the sense that you'll go through, say, Revelation, and there will be a symbol that is used consistently. You know, there'll be a symbol of the dragon for Satan. Does that say Satan is literally a dragon? No, it's a symbol. It's a metaphor, but it's a, we would say it's a symbol in the sense that it runs throughout Scripture. Jesus is typified as a rock throughout the Bible, a stone. It's interesting. Messiah is a stone. It's a symbol that carries through, a metaphor that carries through Scripture. And there's such a reward for studying that. Hyperbole, this is a great one, an exaggerated overstatement, an overstatement, exaggeration. We use this kind of thing all the time. The Samaritan woman, she is talking to Jesus. She goes back into the city of Sakaar and she tells the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Wait a second. She was lying. Did Jesus really tell you everything? Did she get it wrong? Did, did uh, John get something wrong? And then Was it a mistranslation? Or, come on. Do we read? Do we understand figures of speech? It's hyperbole. Jesus told me everything I ever did. She's not lying. It's hyperbole. It's an overstated exaggeration. Uh, Mark 1 gives us another good example of this. He says that, that as John was baptizing in the wilderness and preaching repentance for the remission of sins, that all, then all in the land of Judea and those in Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River. You mean to tell me everyone was baptized by John? Even the Pharisees? and every... Come on. All right, this is... Those are a little bit easier, right? But some of these get a little more difficult. Let's talk about synecdoche a little bit. All right? Synecdoche. Synecdoche is a part that is made to represent the whole. Again, you're like, Pastor, let's not even get into all this grammar stuff. No, this is very important. Let me give you an example. Some people will say that the Gospels are contradicting themselves when Jesus says in Mark, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. In Matthew, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and uh, might. Contradiction? Come on. What's the point? If you go back to Deuteronomy 6.5 where the command is given that Jesus is citing from, God actually says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. So is Mark, is there a problem in, in Mark's gospel where Jesus is adding mind and mind? No, this is a literary device. It's a synecdoche. It's, it's using parts to describe the whole. Heart, soul, mind, strength, whatever. All of your breath, all your being, all your days. Give it to Christ. Love him with all of it. Actually, synecdoche involves some theological differences. Some read 1 Thessalonians 5.23 as concluding that human beings are comprised of three essential parts, body, soul, and spirit. And so you read, Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is Paul's point to, to say that humans are comprised of a trichotomous, a three-part nature, body, soul, and spirit? I don't believe so at all. I, believe, I don't believe so at all because... For most of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, body and soul are used interchangeably. What's he doing then? How do you explain? He says body, soul, and spirit. It's a synecdoche. 
Okay, it's the same thing Jesus is doing. He's using the parts to emphasize the whole. May God sanctify every part of you. Just uh, have time for a couple more here. Sarcasm. Yes, sarcasm is in the Bible. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah is, uh, is there calling. He says to these who are the prophets of Baal, they're dancing about the altar. They've been praying for a long time. Nothing's happening. He says, call out with a loud voice. For he, that is Baal, is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. Now, Elijah is not encouraging these false prophets to persist in their false religion. What's he doing? He's mocking them. And you can hear the, the satire in his voice, the tone of his voice. We have to read the Bible as literature and allow it to do so. Paul gives us, uh, he's a great example of one who used irony in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 10, you know, the, the Corinthians were one of the churches that, that weren't trusting Paul. They were putting him down. They were doubting his apostolic ministry. There were some in the church challenging him. Some were saying, I'm a Peter. Uh, I'm a Paulus. I don't care about Paul. Right? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 10. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake. Now, when he says the we there, it's the apostles. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. If you read it in the context there, he's saying, you guys are everything. We're just, we're just nothing. And it's Paul's very ironic way of, of really getting them to think about their pride. And we could, there's a couple of other instances I have of Paul and sarcasm that are interesting. Euphemism, instances like Acts 1, 25. Where did Judas go when he died? Well, the apostles say that Judas, when he died, he turned, he turned aside to his own place. That's a euphemism for you know what. 1 Corinthians 11.30. Paul's describing those that are asleep because of their disobedience to God. It's a euphemism for the fact they have died in Christ. God's chastised them by taking their lives. Personification is another. I'll just end with this. Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. There will be Jehovah's Witnesses that will take you to this text. I had a Bible study with Jehovah's Witnesses in our house once, and they, they had in their Watchtower magazine, this is one of two proof texts that Jesus must be created. Because they take you to Proverbs 8.22, and it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established from the beginning, and from the earliest times of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water... Now, in the 4th century, Arius, one of these bishops who believed Jesus was a created being and all that, he understood Proverbs 8 here to be talking about the creation of Jesus Christ. And so more recently, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, also known as the Jehovah's Witnesses, have pointed to this text to say Jesus was created. Here's the problem. When you read the context, when you, when you read who's talking here, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, and uh, from everlasting I was established... This is wisdom talking. In fact, the whole Proverbs 1 through 9 makes that plain, but especially chapter 8, this is called personification. It's where human characteristics, attributes, are attributed to something inanimate or a, a quality like wisdom for the sake of you and I better appreciating and, and thinking about, conceptualizing that abstract quality, which is in this case wisdom. So th there's more we could say about that, but you can see readily how people coming to the Bible without an appreciation for it as literature and, uh, and simply saying, well, it says this, 
So that's what it means. And I appreciate their intention there. They want to get the meaning, perhaps. But you have to respect these figures of speech, these exceptions to a literal reading of the text. So next week, what we'll do is we'll discuss the rest of those exceptions to a literal reading of the text and also look at some interpretative extremes and things. On the back of your paper, there's a quiz that you can use to think about some of these, some of these things in your own time.